0: Hi everyone, you are listening to She Leads with Carly. Our guest today is Danielle Strachman, the founder and general partner of 1517. Danielle has so much depth in her career experiences from founding her own nonprofit charter school to being at the forefront of the well renowned Teal Fellowship to founding 1517, a venture capital fund built on the belief that not everyone needs to attend university in order to pursue their passions. Danielle's passion for helping others and entrepreneurship really embodies her yes mentality. She also chats about the importance of building a tight-knit community and seeking out founders who have such a pure passion for what they're building that they wouldn't be able to do anything else. For any young entrepreneur, this one's for you. Danielle brings such a wealth of knowledge and experience working with young entrepreneurs that I hope you enjoy it as much as I love talking to her. Hello, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining She Leads today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you? How's everything? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Carly. Of course. So, Danielle, you are... The founder and general partner at 1517, which yep. is an early stage venture capital fund that supports teams led by dropouts, deep tech scientists, and founders working outside of tracked institutions. So really, yep. you guys—you guys are built on the belief that you know the path geared towards higher education is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. So before 1517, you were also on the founding team of the Teal Fellowship, which we'll mm-hmm. obviously get into, and you were the founder and director of Innovations Academy. So a new charter school nonprofit with over 160 students in its first year, which is crazy. So we'll get into all of that. But first, so what I typically do is, you know, tell me after college, where did you, you know, imagine your career and everything, but I want to even go further earlier for you. And really, you know, after high school, did you, were you similar in that, you know, college was the only path? Or was there also where you kind of started to think like, okay, this is where, you know, there's an alternative path for me an alternative learning path that you can go down. So what was it kind of for you?
1: You know, I did not know, I mean, in some ways I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I always say to yeah. people that every five years of my life has been totally different than the previous five years. And so, um, who knows? I mean, I anticipate still doing 15, 17 in five years, but, but yeah. life has all kinds of twists and turns. Um, but when I was in, high school, I did not have a sense for what I wanted to do. I was always someone who was interested in a bunch of different things. And I always envied my friends who were of the position of being like, oh, you know, I had a lot of friends who wanted to be teachers or nurses, and they just knew that. And I was never that person. I was never like, oh yeah, I'm going to be this. Um, So when I was, uh, I guess, 16, 17, I did apply to schools. um, in mostly in the Northeast, I was grown up in the Boston area, and I got into the school that I wanted to go to, which is Simmons College, which is a small all-women's college, Um, but I remember, I still remember getting the acceptance letter, and when you get accepted into something, then you get to really think about if you really want it or not. Like, I always tell people, apply for stuff, because you don't get to make the decision about if you go until you get an acceptance, and that could be for a grant program, that could be for a school, that could be for boot camp. Um, you know, and of course there are sometimes limits to applying to things like application fees. Um, but if those limits aren't too high, I always encourage people to do it. But I remember getting the acceptance and then I I kind of started thinking to myself, oh gosh, do I want to do this? And I remember saying something to my mom uh, and my mom was super excited. I think, I think in part she was thrilled that I could go to an all women's school, which, um, I didn't even pick it for that. I picked it for other reasons. Um, but I remember saying to her like, gosh, you know, I don't, I don't know, like, sort of like, I said something to her, like, I don't know if I want to go or something or like, if I should go. And I remember exactly what she said. But the tone was definitely like, you're going to school. (laughs) Like, uh, and I I specifically remember her saying things like, you know, you know, women and and other people fought for you to be able to have this choice. And one thing that's kind of interesting about that is that it's true, people do do fight for the future uh, and have fought for the future that we are all enabled to have today. But I think what they were fighting for was the choice for us to have it, not that it should become a have to. Um, but I wasn't as savvy a debater <laughs> when I was 18. So I didn't I didn't have the articulation to tell my mom like, well, I think people were cho- fighting for the yeah. choice, not that I had to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I didn't have a sense of you know what I wanted to do. Laptops were just starting to come out, um, and so the idea that you could build something on a computer that would scale was still, I think, in, in most people's minds, not even a thing. Like I was gonna say, many years away. But you know, but that was that was sort of my path. Was I did go to school. Um, I did get my undergrad degree. I didn't go for further education after that. I did have a choice to go to grad school. Yeah. And I kind of remember waking up when I was 22 saying, gosh, do I really want to spend, you know, four to seven more years in school getting something like a PhD? Um, or do I really want to go out and, and work in the working world? And the answer was the latter. Yeah. Uh, but even, even when I was in college, like, I remember at the time, it was... Um, it was strange to like not have a major and for a long time I really resisted having a major. I really wanted like uh, I wanted like a makeshift major. Like I wanted a scholarly women's major where I could just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I remember my professors telling me they're like you can't do that because you won't be hireable and X Y and Z. And and the funny thing looking back at this is that any job I've had has actually come through the connections I've created with people. It's not been through applying for a job. um so it's interesting to see what the recommendations were that I was getting to people at that time versus now I can look back and see what actually happened and that they're often quite different
0: yeah so it seems like throughout this time though you always you know you had this thought being like okay now that I'm in is this the right path or like you never really had this definite answer like okay this is the next step this is the next step even though you know like right now it's still it's still pretty common even right now like for instance you know People that I'm surrounded by in my high school, it was like everyone goes to college. Like, you know, that's great. So, so it's really interesting. So, now after college, tell me, like, what, how did you what? find your first job? You know, like, what was that next step? And was there ever. Yeah. Was there ever a point where you're like, "Am I doing the right thing?" I feel a bit oh, lost yeah. right now. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I had it? an
1: early twenties life crisis for sure. <laughs> Everybody goes through this. If yeah. you're sitting there thinking, "I'm not going to go through that," that means you're missing something. Yeah. I am a firm believer in that. Going through something like a midlife or twenties life crisis, I think they're actually that crisis is really a developmental milestone that you go through. Yeah. Um, yeah. It sucks. It doesn't feel good, but it's not supposed to feel good. If everything is like coasting along perfectly, you're, you're due for one. <laughs> yeah. like, that's what I always tell people. And, and I am probably due for one somewhat. <laughs> I'm kind of going through one with COVID right now in terms of just like, wow, what is this whole yeah. existing the way we are thing? Like everything is so strange. So it's making me mm-hmm. question a lot of things, but to answer your direct question, yeah. um, Yeah. You know, my first, my first, um, well, I used to do a lot of sort of odd jobs. Um, I used to tutor kids a lot when I was in school. Um, I always liked teaching a lot, but people had always told me like, got me off the educational path. Like, you know, there's that adage, those who can't teach. Um, we all know that the pay is not very good for teachers. Um, respect is low, things like that. And what I noticed was, um, at one point I started veering towards getting interested in neuropsychology and I I liked psych a lot that ended up becoming one of my majors that in performance music Mm. and the way that I got my first internship which turned into my first job was actually just kind of calling around like I knew that I thought I thought it would be cool to watch what people do in a neuropsych institute and so the first place I called was a is was Brigham and Women's Children's Hospital in Boston, but they weren't taking any sort of interns and I wasn't even phrasing it as an intern. I was like, well, you just let me come watch. Like, I just, I just want to see what you do. And they didn't have anything like that, but they recommended that I call the hospital next door, which was the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And so I remember going in there and, um, this, uh, doctor met with me, Dr. Margaret O'Connor. And she was like, so what are you doing here? Like they didn't have an internship posted, nothing. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm just interested in this topic. And I thought it would be really cool to be able to observe what you all do. And she's like, okay. Um, and I still remember she, she told me that uh, one thing I was doing well was just presenting well. Mm. Like I dressed professionally going to the job. She actually said to me, Oh, you didn't show up in a cutoff shirt and jeans. That's great. Like that's what she (laughs) apparently that had happened in the past. And so you know, showing up and showing up in the appropriate way for the position you want, looking the part is important. Yeah. Um, And uh, and so I started doing observations, and the observations, um, you know, it was never called a formal internship, but it turned into me doing the work. So I remember I was observing the cognitive batteries that they would give people um, I would observe the way that Dr. Margaret O'Connor would work with patients and things like that. And then after a while they were like, Hey, you've been here for a while. I was coming in a few days a week. Um, you know, would you, would you want to start giving some of the tests? Um, so then I started, uh, going off on the path of becoming what's called a psychometrician. That's the person who gives like the assessment and the batteries. Okay. And, uh, and I was the youngest person, I think that they've ever had sort of intern, even though it wasn't a formal internship there. And then I started training the grad school students on the tests and the batteries. And I'm still friends with a bunch of them and wow. follow them on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we chat about all kinds of stuff. And they're still like, I remember you, you trained me how to do this. And yeah. which was funny for me. Cause I was in undergrad and they were the grad student.
2: Yeah. But,
1: um, but at one point, I really thought that was my path. I mm-hmm. thought I was going to become a clinician. I thought I was going to work in neuropsych. I really liked the work a lot, and I still love the work a lot. Like, it's really fun to go back and think about it. But what I noticed was that I wasn't, like, eating, breathing, and drinking it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't as passionate about it as I thought I could be. And so then when I had applied to grad school and I got into a program, I had that, that moment, again, of, like, oh, I'm in. Oh, God, do I want to do this? Right. And I decided I didn't want to do it because I kind of had this thought that, you know, if when I put my feet down out of my bed in the morning and I'm not super excited to go do it, to do whatever I'm doing, then if that's what growing up meant doing, then I didn't really want to grow up. Like I just, I wanted to figure out other things. And that veered me into saying, you know, no to going to grad school and actually starting a tutoring business. And I was just a sole proprietor, started my tutoring company, which combined my work in neuropsych because i would use some of the assessments that i had with students to be able to assess where they were at yeah. and so i i love combining things and, and bringing things at different places to the intersection of them and so i was like oh neuropsych and learning like yeah let's let's bring this to the forefront that would be yeah. great um and i was very fulfilled by doing that work and um and yeah, but that was a huge moment for me to not... I still remember, like, I've never had... A, I've never had the conversation with Dr. Margaret O'Connor that I didn't go to grad school. Wow. Like, I left the Boston area with her thinking I was leaving to go to grad school because I felt so much shame about telling... Like, I was like, yeah. I can't tell her I'm not becoming a clinician. Like, this is... Like, I look up to her so much. Yeah. Um, and so it was a really hard time at the time.
0: So, okay, so now... You know, you're starting your tutoring business challenges, you know, along the way. And were you questioning, okay, is this is this my long term or, you know, it doesn't seem that you actually like what was the time frame that you really thought ahead? Does that make sense? Because you said like every five years it sometimes changes. So I'm curious, you know, how how much do you plan? And then obviously it take me now to, you know, finding the Innovations Academy and what led to that. Sure.
1: so for that's a great question about like how much is planned versus not.
0: Yeah. I think
1: I'll have an inkling of something, but I wouldn't call it a plan. So it's like, I knew when I just, when I, so I I have these moments in life and I think other people have them too, where you get an itch that you have to scratch. And if you don't do it, like it's like a compulsion. And I've had this in very simple ways. Like at one point I was like, I'm dying my hair purple. Like it's happening. It it was like two days later, it was purple. Like I had to do it. So that's like a simple example. But when I started thinking about, starting my tutoring company, it was that itch to scratch again. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this. And so then I, uh, you know, I learned to build a website. Like I had never built, I didn't code at all. I learned how to build a website. Mm-hmm. I put up some ads on Craigslist. This was back in the day when Craigslist was not creepy. Yeah. Um, you know, I started um, reading books just up the wazoo about any sort of um, child development, education, anything I could get my hands on. And so it was sort of building it up over time. And that's been true for, I think, most pieces of my career is that it hasn't been like fully fledged up. Like, I wasn't like, I'm going to build a, you know, big tutoring company or something like that. And it was never a big thing. It was mostly me. Um, But what people told me along the way is everyone was like, oh, all my friends have tried to start tutoring companies. No one has been able to support themselves, let alone other people. I get to the point where I was making a good salary and then um, I was actually having to refer up to other tutors because I had so much demand. And so I very much believe in the adage of like, just put one foot in front of the other I'm also a really big believer in trying things out before you like jump to it. Like 1517, for example, started with two t-shirts. We had the idea and we were like, I wonder if this name would resonate with people. So we printed off two t-shirts. Michael went to LA Hacks, presented the idea. The crowd went absolutely bonkers. It was yeah. about a thousand hackers. And we were like, okay, I guess we'll stick with the name <laughs> and I guess we'll do it. So it's like getting these small validation points. Yeah. And it was the same thing with Innov- uh, Innovations Academy, my public charter school um a colleague of mine and i were uh in a homeschool co-op that she started and she came to me one day and said would you want to start a charter school with me and at first i was like school like we hate school why would we want to do that um and she didn't use these words but what she was talking about was scale she was like hey we've got like 13 families here but maybe this could be bigger than that and so in the one foot in front of each other vein we just started working on it we used to meet on fridays in a coffee shop in san diego And, um, and that's how we got going. And two years later we opened and her and I co-principaled the school and we used to pass each other in the hallway and we would stop and kind of whisper who allowed this, like who allowed her and I to just do this? Like, this is neither one of us had ever run an organization. We yeah. had never hired and fired people before. We had never dealt with so many parents in our life. And, and now the school has been around for about 13 years and we serve 400 students. We just bought a building. It's like a real thing. And We, we still like are like, wow, who allowed that? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. But it wasn't, um, you know, we knew we had this vision of serving young people and, and, and creating this school, but we didn't know where it was gonna go. And it was really just taking everything day by day
0: amazing yeah and so so it seems at this point you really also you also started to think about education with innovation and you know like integration of because right now even today and it's it's sad but you know like entrepreneurship innovation it's not really taught as part of the curriculum so when did you realize that this is like actually a very important thing that students should be learning and and yeah and then that's kind of how you incorporate it to innovations academy but tell me a little bit when that when that realization happened
1: yeah. Well, and for us too, with, with, you know, innovation for innovation of the Academy has a tech component, but we're not like a, we're not like a tech magnet school or, right. or like a math science magnet school or something like that. It's more of the innovation of how do we think about how to work with um, human beings basically. Yes. And so we have different things um, that are pretty far from the norm. Like at our school, all students are on a first name basis with us. Like I was not miss Danielle. there; There's just Danielle there. Yeah. Um, We had a very, um, you know, a lot of schools use sort of punitive discipline policies to, like, keep students in line. And I would say what we do is a lot more like talk therapy to kind of understand, like, hey, students have needs and... you know, how do we meet those needs? And hey, there, there's a right time and a place for almost anything. And so, how do we give them the outlet for that so then it doesn't happen in the classroom and so on? So, a lot of what we do is child led. And the innovation piece as well is that it's not about having standard curriculum. It's really about, and I think this is really where it comes into, you know, um, the current sort of time and environment of. That school isn't about regurgitating information. It's about learning how to work with people. It's about learning how to dig into questions that don't have a defined answer. Um, It is about doing projects and things that are really enriching. It's about working in an environment that isn't sterile. Um, We used to always say to our teachers, like each one of your classrooms is kind of like a mini startup environment where you can experiment with a lot of different things. And you can even have like centers around the class where different groups of students are doing different things. Like it's not that everybody's getting the same And one thing that we're super passionate about is also being child directed. And so this whole idea that students would come up with projects, you know, predominantly with the teacher is more like a facilitator instead of the teacher saying, oh, I've got this project that we're going to do with you, um, which is fine. That's just not what we do. And and so our whole method um, is very much based around non-coercion and working with where students are at Mm -hmm. instead of saying all students have to fit into a particular bucket.
0: Amazing. I love it. I think that's such a beautiful value and premise and everything. So so Danielle, now take me to, you know, what point did you decide, okay, this school is incredible, it's doing really well, but it's time for me to step away. And then, and then obviously the Teal Fellowship. Explain what that is as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my co-founder and I founded the school in the first two years, which was a lot of bureaucratic homework from the district to yeah. get us approved. We opened in 2008, and then her and I ran the school together from 2008 to 2010. Um, In 2010, I definitely was having maybe another, uh, I guess, a late 20s life crisis of, hey, is this really what I want to be doing? I think this happens to entrepreneurs and founders a lot, where you start something and you love it, but then you get boxed into a role Mm -hmm. that isn't the thing that you love. And so I loved working with students and having an impact in the moment. And I still remember my tutoring days, I used to tell parents, I think they could have just gotten a recording of me saying, and now what? And now what? Now, you know, next, what happens? How about this? But I love getting to watch the light bulb go off for people. But when you become a school administrator, you don't get to do that. You're working with the district. You're working with parents. um, You're not working with students that much anymore. And so after a couple of years, I was like, gosh, um you know i really want to get back to working uh you know with with the, the people that resonate with me which are more sort of student cohorts yeah and i moved up to the bay area um sort of like kind of on a whim but but predominantly because i had an old uh partner who lived up here and we were doing the back and forth thing and i was like yeah i guess i'll go up to the bay i have a lot of friends up there i saw I saw this great migration from people in southern california coming north right. and I was gonna not work for six months that was my goal i had never not worked for um a long time yeah and three months into my staycation uh lindy fishburn at the teal foundation called me and she said hey and i, I knew her from a project we had worked on together she said the foundation has lost their minds they're starting this program called the teal fellowship maybe you saw it launched this week like in the news but they don't have anybody running it, and you've got to get over here. I was like, wow, who starts a program and doesn't have like a team running it? Or and I was like, have they done a pilot? And she's like, nope. And I'm like, who does this? Like, I'm an operations person. So I was like, wow, how does this happen? Yeah. Like, I just spent four years in my charter school, which has tons of operations and stopgaps. But who does that? Peter Teal does that. Um, so yes. I came on board about 10 days later to the foundation to start running the Teal Fellowship, and it was really at least on my part, conceived of as an older young person's homeschool program, a very like unschooly methodology of that. Each fellow has something that they're working on and we're going to help guide them through it. Um, And we used to always tell people, you know, this is like a buffet, like you get a hundred thousand dollars to work on a project of your choosing at the time people were 19 uh, or under when they became Teal fellows, we gave them support of the foundation. Um, You know, they got, mentors. We had things like retreats. Actually, this is really funny. Uh, uh, one of the first year Teal fellows just tweeted the other day, Nick Murata, that apparently um, this guy, he's amazing. He's a chess master and a hedge fund guy. His name is Patrick Wolfe. We had him come speak to fellows and his, his advice to them was learn how to live really cheap and don't buy expensive rugs. And he was tweeting about remembering this lesson. And I was like, did we really have someone come in and talk about that? I don't remember that. <laughs> um, But but yeah, it was amazing to run that program for the first five years and work with fellows. And what we used to always say about it is that it's a two-year program with a 10-year time horizon. And this September will be 10 years that the program launched. So I'm really excited to catch up with some of the first and second year fellows uh, in another month and just find out like, where are you now? Like what's going on? And, you know, we know about where a lot of them are, but some of them it's been a while. So it's time to catch up.
0: That's incredible. And so from from your experience with the teal fellowship, what advice can you give other young young entrepreneurs? Because you know you yeah. worked with so many entrepreneurs and with fifteen seventeen now. So tell yeah. me like what what do you, what would you say is some like key ingredient that they need to do in order to be successful?
1: Um, I would say that you know the, I guess I would say young entrepreneurs, but also just you know, um, I don't think everybody has to be a founder, but I think. I think being entrepreneurial is a great trait for anybody to have and so to be entrepreneurial in part it's about knowing how to move something forward knowing how to take that small step i talk to a lot of founders and they'll say like yeah i've got this huge vision 10 years this thing i'm like cool that's awesome but what are you doing on friday and they're like i don't know and so think about how do you start scaffolding the things that you want to do Um, you want to think, you know, I think as much as you can put yourself in a position of doing things that you're both passionate about and that people will pay you for because we are in an economic society, who knows what will happen next year? 2020 has been wild. Like, I don't know, maybe money won't exist next year. (laughs) I have no clue.
2: Um,
1: but, um, but I think it's important for that alignment to be there. I think a lot of young people are told like, you know, do the thing of your dreams. And like, I actually kind of feel a little sick when people say that, because I think it's important to go after things that you want, but you also have to make sure that there's some amount of reality yeah. that is sort of backing it up um, in terms of, can you be employed somewhere? Can you support yourself in some way? What yeah. does that look like? Yeah. Um, so those are a couple of things. I guess the other things are, are, are one, know that, Build, build community around you over network. Mm-hmm. I think people talk a lot about business networking, um, but what really has return on investment is really building up a great community of people o- around you over the long run. And it's better to have a smaller community and really keep in touch with them than to have a huge community and only tap people when you want something. Yeah, Everybody yeah. knows when you tap them when you want something, no one wants to work with you. It's yeah. like, oh, this person only comes when they haven't asked for me. But, um, but what you'll notice is, like, you know, reach out to mentors, reach out to peers. Over time, everybody gets better, Yeah. Um, which means that that community you've developed gets richer and richer over time, which means that you can tap into something that's better and better.
0: Yeah. And I mean, even, Danielle, from hearing your story in your early early days in your career, it seems like also, like, the importance of having that almost yes mentality, you know, like you it, and the community aspect, but I feel like you know you have just grabbed onto these opportunities, whether it's a Teal Fellowship or the Innovations Academy. And yeah. So I think that's also some valuable thing because you know I think it's at the end of the day you have an experience and you're going to learn from it, and you know you can step away if it's not that passion that you know you eat, drink, and yeah. breathe. So I think that's great. Well, and
1: that was certainly a true part. I had had other organizations come to me during my staycation period yeah. before the Teal Fellowship came forward. And I was getting offers from people that were fairly attractive. And at the same time, they weren't the thing that I knew I was supposed to be doing. So I also knew I knew when to say yes, but I also knew when to say no. Right. Um, And I think that has been a a large learning over the course of my career is how do you figure out what things to say yes to and what things to say no to and how do you prioritize and um, feel focused?
0: And I mean, even for the Teal Fellowship, it wasn't completely you know, no risk. It seems like the fact that they were launching something without any team behind it. So it was almost like, would you say like your passion kind of just drove you because you wanted to be in front working with those students? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, you know, and it's not, it wasn't that risky in the sense of like, okay, like, you know, I'm going to get paid to do this work. It's through a foundation, you know, that's financially stable. Like, you know, so it wasn't the, the biggest risk, although there were risks in terms of, and to this day, people are like, oh, well, how successful was it? And I'm like, well, what metrics do you want to measure that on? Yeah. Um, and so people have very polarizing views on it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of fans, but I'm sure I have some haters as well, because some people don't like the message of maybe college isn't the right thing for everybody. Right.
0: So, okay, before we get to the fun questions, I obviously do want to get to 1517. So yeah. <laughs> so tell me, you know, first... you. You've said like every five years, it's been something different. Has venture capital been something that you were like, okay, eventually I'm gonna go into that? Or yeah, yeah. how did that happen <laughs> so, then?
1: I always tell people, if someone had asked me ten years ago when I was first joining the foundation, "Would you would you become a VC?" I would have said, "What's VC?" <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I didn't know anything about it. Um, if had someone told me when I was a kid you're gonna work in the financial Asset class. I would, I would just would have laughed at them. I feel like it's right. really funny. Um, and some in some days it still feels that way to me. Um, but what we really saw with the fellowship was that there was a gap in the market, basically. And I think there's something that I've always been driven working with younger people and um, filling needs that aren't being fulfilled. And so, for example, with my school, that was creating a school that students would want to come to and feel a certain way at. Right. Um, with the fellowship, it was giving young people an opportunity to do projects. Um, with the fellow, uh, with 1517, it has been really about offering funding to people who are often overlooked because they don't have a degree. I can't tell you how many times people will talk to us and say, gosh, this is such a relief to talk to somebody who does, whose first question isn't like, where did you go to school? In fact, we never ask people, where did they go to school? Sometimes it comes up or people just tell us but. Like, we don't have that as a checklist question. Um, but it was really from working with the Teal Fellows and seeing this gap of there's fellows who are out there who are doing great work, but it's hard to find funding for them and it's hard to pair these things up um, that we thought we could make a novel thesis out of it. And we did have to learn a lot. You know, we, we knew a lot about how to source for talent with the Teal Fellowship because we got five years under our belt of doing that. Yeah. But then as fund, what we needed to think about was how do we, you know, how do we fund things that could actually be venture scalable and, and have a major return? Um and actually we have our first company that went public on Monday. Wow. Um Amazing. they're gonna be in the public markets in November. But yeah, that's um that's still sinking in. I'm like, wait, what? That happened? That's crazy. Amazing. Um so so it's pretty wild. But um but there'll be more learning to go. Um I mean that's one fun thing about running a fund is that I I call um, VC advanced tutoring, but it's not that I'm teaching anybody, it's that my founders are constantly teaching me.
0: Yeah, incredible. So throughout, you know, getting the entrepreneurs that you're seeing, you know, every day who are pitching to you and everything, have you noticed a difference between, you know, those who do go the college path and those who maybe have that entrepreneurial spirit and that itch and they just want to get started regardless of going to college? Is there a difference that you see?
1: I'm sure there are some differences i don't know that i've put the difference on the line of like going to college versus yeah. not going to college but what i see with founders is that founders often have like the best founders that i've worked with really have a problem they want to solve or a group that they want to serve and they are just like die hard about it i was talking to my team earlier and i said you know one of the things i look for in founders is this like fire in the belly mm. like you can feel it from somebody of like they are going to do this thing. They're going to build this thing. They're a maker. They love inventing, you know, or they're going to serve a particular population because they're just kind of crazed about it because they're eating, drinking and sleeping it.
2: Um,
1: And that is a quality that is really hard to fake. Um, And so I'll talk to other people who don't have the fire in their belly. And they're like, Oh, I saw this business opportunity. There's a hole here and there's an arbitrage opportunity. And I'm like, Mm, it could make some money, but the truth of the matter and what we say to founders a lot is that starting a company is so hard and there's no money and there's no fame until many years in and like the first two years in particular and sometimes up to the first four years are just pain and suffering it is just really hard and you're not like the delta between that mission and what you're doing on friday is so big (laughs) yeah and at the founder you feel it i remember feeling this at my school of being like oh my god we want to be teaching and doing things at this level but right now we're here and oh my god like feeling that delta it was painful um, that's why and, you need
0: that passion, almost like yeah, that's what's going to drive
1: you. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. And so that the people really have to have that because that is what motivates you yeah. in the dark nights of the soul, through the hard parts, through the nose from investors, through the you know, I lost my co-founder, through the, yeah. the good times too. But like you just have to be really all in in a very soulful way, and that's what we look for that stands out.
0: Amazing. Yeah, it's almost like that reminds me of I don't know where I heard this, but it's almost like when you know when an entrepreneur comes to you, whether you're going to invest or not, they're going to do it because they have that passion. Yeah, so even, that, yeah.
1: exactly right. Those Amazing. are the types of people, and I always tell people like most of us have had that experience of being really passionate about something, but often when we're younger and sometimes we lose that. So sometimes I'll tell people like remember that feeling when you couldn't not do that thing. Like, you know, I'll even think of silly examples. Like a lot of kids are into magic. They'll yeah. be like, oh, I learned card tricks and I did this or I had these hobbies. And it's like, think about the insatiability that you had then, mm. if you can apply it to something now that will really, and that could be in your studies. So this doesn't have to do with building a company. Yeah. It could be in anything that you do that that just like bright eyed curiosity will take you way further than anyone else trying to push you along and yeah. forcing you.
0: I love that. I think that's a great, you know, just like value to live by even just like finding that insatiable passion. I think that's great. Okay, mm-hmm. Danielle, honestly, I could talk for another hour, but I want to move to the fun question. So first, tell me, tell me a passion that you have other than, you know, venture capital, alternative learning, all of this stuff. What's another passion?
1: Um, I, I have a bunch. Um, yeah. uh, one thing I've learned about myself is that I love, I love to learn and do new things. I love to kind of dip my toes in the water and I used to feel bad about this because I used to think like, oh, I'm not becoming like an expert in anything. I'm kind of a Jill of all trades across. But what I've learned is that actually what I love is the process of the beginning part of learning something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, right, right now I'm actually doing a bunch of music and art stuff. Nice. Uh, I started taking up guitar again. That's been really great. I'm hoping to do more of a deeper dive. I have a teacher I'm working with. Nice. Um, I love movement activities, dance and yoga. Um, I also, I am a personal development junkie. Um, so I, I love, uh, yeah, I love anything in that vein. My, 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 uh, uh, there's a modality called internal family systems that I absolutely love and find very powerful and interesting. And so I love reading books about it. I was going to say,
0: what's, what's probably the best book that you've read in that, in that vein?
1: That one? Oh gosh, there's a book um there's oh uh, there's a book called i think it's called self therapy uh and it's very good and it it outlines sort of this particular um modality what's interesting is i have a second cousin who's gosh he's got to be in his 60s or 70s and he's a therapist and I was talking to him and he's funny he's like are you a therapist like you really like know how to talk to talk I'm like no no I work in venture yeah. um but um we were talking and he's like yeah I found this this new thing that I love called uh, internal family systems I'm like oh that stuff is so good oh, <laughs> I'm gonna So yeah I oh and I uh some people know this but some people don't I love animal training and like trick training so I have a cat she she has she knows six tricks
0: wow. um, and that's know, just is that just you, you know, looking online, researching how to, how to train an animal or how do you... It was
1: my, it was my first job, actually. Oh, my first amazing. job was working with animals and doing some trick training. And so I just apply that with the founders I work with. And, and with my...
0: <laughs> Amazing. Sounds like a great, great process. Okay. Last question is tell me or show me a fun or weird talent that you have that no one really knows about. So Danielle, I'm going to go first. Okay, okay. So what I do is I throw blueberries Okay. And I catch them in my mouth. All
1: right. Oh, let's see. There uh-huh. oh, we go. Okay. It amazing. <laughs> um, I, I can, I can show you my like Danielle stupid human tricks basically. Those are the things that are coming to my one, like my fingers can bend backwards. Oh, wow. I think a little bit further than other people's. The other is that I do something that, um, I don't have, I don't, I'll have to sort of, uh, copy what I do. But there's a there's like habits we all pick up. And one of my habits is um that when I drink something <laughs> I have to make that sound. Like I can't especially if it's a hot beverage and it's the first sip, I can't not do it. And my colleague Zach, he gets so annoyed oh by it. He's God, like so funny. He's like, Can't you stop? I'm like, No. It's like it's in me it's just
0: natural it just comes out (laughs) oh my god that's hilarious okay well that's great and even even in your passion answer I think you you gave a few talents in there too so anyway Danielle this has been so fun thank you so much for coming on the show and just teaching me so much so really honestly thanks so much it's been great yeah thanks for having me of course